Miss me? Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 385, The Audacity of Boats. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Thomas, Mark, and Frank for signing up already. Okay, nerds, take this down. Dear Harry, I was saddened to hear of King Edward's death, but I'm writing to inform you that my beloved cousin promised me the throne a while back. Now, don't worry if this is news to you. It was a secret, so I understand if you're a little surprised. Anyway, thanks for keeping the seat warm, but don't get too comfortable, haha. Everyone here in Normandy is very excited about all of this, and they also know how you promised me the throne, so I'm glad that we're all on the same page. I look forward to ruling over you as king. See you soon. Cheers, Duke William of Normandy. Dear Bill, my thoughts and prayers are with you in this difficult time after losing such a beloved family member. I must admit, I was a little surprised by your letter, and I wonder if you had me confused with your neighbor in Maine, because you have also said that he secretly promised you his throne as well, and I understand if these things are kind of hard for you to keep track of, considering that you can't read. On the matter of that throne, I'm going to talk straight with you, because you seem like a stand-up guy and you're kind of new around here. The truth is, I can't promise you something I don't have. And as for any alleged promises made by Unsteady Eddie, well, we're running into the same problem there as well, Bill. Because up here, we don't hand over crowns in secret chats. There's a process. The Witan chooses a king. And the Witan chose me to be king this time. No hard feelings. This is just business. So take it easy, champ. His Royal Highness, King Harold II of England. Dear Hank, Look, everyone here is expecting me to be king. I've been talking about it for ages, and if this thing falls through, I'm going to look ridiculous in front of all the guys. So I'm going to need you to work with me here. I'll tell you what, I'll cut you a deal. Give me half the kingdom and marry my daughter, and I won't tell everyone that you're an oathbreaker. It's the best I can do for you in such short notice, and I'd really hate to bring my knights into this. They're just so big, and their swords are all so pointy. No one wants that kind of aggravation. So you're welcome, by the way, and I promise that after the wedding, I won't mention any of this ever again. Kiss, 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 Duke William of Normandy. Let me just read this back to you, Bill, because I want to make sure I'm hearing you right. You want me to leave my wife marry your daughter, and give you half of England, or else you're going to invade with knights. Okay, I see a couple problems with this, Bill. First, I very much love my wife. And second, I very much love being king of the whole of England. So I'm going to have to say we're going to go with option number two. Not because I'm thrilled with the idea of being invaded, but because I've always wanted to see what horses would look like with those little water wings. Sounds like you've got a hell of a plan put together there. XOXOXO, His Royal Highness, King Harold II of England. Now, I wish I could say these were direct translations of the messages that were flying back and forth across the channel. But unfortunately, there aren't surviving copies of the letters. 
There are, however, all manner of pop historians who say with shocking levels of certainty what William or Harold said in this or that circumstance. But the truth is, we really don't know for sure. What we are certain of, though, is that letters were being written. And thanks to reconstructions from figures like William of Poitiers, we have a pretty good idea of the kinds of demands and threats that were being made. Though we also have to be cautious because Poitiers himself admits that he was forced to rely on word of mouth for these accounts because he wasn't actually present when the letters were presented. So while we can't know the precise details for certain, we do know that at least some people people that William of Poitiers was listening to, were discussing these events at the time. And it does appear that there were indeed accusations of broken promises, demands of marriage, threats of violence, and even the proposition of cutting the kingdom in half and calling it squaresies. But the part of this fight that caught the attention of many historians is actually the matter of the marriage proposal. And the thinking for these historians is that if William wasn't shocked by Harold's ascension, and if he wasn't seeking peace, then why would he ask Harold if he still planned to marry his daughter? Basically, that offer is taken by some historians as proof that William was trying to play nice and Harold was a big jerk refusing to avoid war. The trouble with that, though, as other historians have pointed out, is that we have to take William's word on it that he even had a betrothal. And his word is more than a little shaky. And beyond that, even if the betrothal existed, it doesn't prove that William was trying to play nice and that he saw Harold as some sort of future son-in-law. It's far more likely that William may have been trying to save face, as he could argue that while he wasn't the king of England like he told everyone he would be, he now had a marriage alliance with that king and his grandson would be the future king of England. And that might get him out of this jam that his prideful boasting had gotten him into. But even that wasn't a simple or easy solution to the matter, as other historians have pointed out. Because first of all, Harold already had a wife. Her name was Edith. And while there are questions as to whether she was a formal wife or a Danish wife, basically an informal partnership or concubine, the fact remains that there definitely was already a woman in the picture, and he had kids with that woman. So that's a big ask, even if we discount the issue that there is another person that he's potentially remarrying as well, Morcar and Edwin's sister. So this whole thing is already complicated. Furthermore, if we look at the claims of a betrothal between Harold and one of William's daughters, that betrothal would have been Agatha, one of William's younger daughters, who was at most a young teenager at the time of Harold's ill-fated visit to Normandy. So Harold's own children were probably around the same age as her. And beyond the obvious yikes factor, that massive age gap means that if this betrothal took place, which is hotly debated, it wasn't something that would have triggered for many, many years. And that might have been intentional. Because the thing about these political betrothals is that while they were rather routine, they were also just as routinely broken off when both parties came of age. So if this betrothal happened, and that is a big if, no reasonable person would have assumed that it was absolutely set in stone. Especially since if it actually did take place, it would have been worked out during the time when Harold was in Normandy, which would have certainly meant that it was under duress. 
So the whole thing is dodgy as hell. And I suspect that the reality here is that at most, Harold may have told William that he would eventually marry Agatha because he knew he would probably die in the dungeons of Normandy if he didn't. And if that is the scenario, he likely picked Agatha because he knew that he'd have time before the betrothal would actually be called, and that would give him ample opportunity to break it off once he was safely back on the shores of England. So with all that being said, if these things were so routine and were so routinely broken off, and if it was actually rather unlikely that it happened in the first place, why was the proposal included in the Norman accounts? Well, we don't know for sure, but I suspect that it helps them build a pattern of behavior where Harold repeatedly breaks oaths and refuses multiple offers of peace and then even goes forward and breaks some hearts. It paints Harold not as a victim of conquest, but as the arrogant, tyrannical scoundrel who had it coming. And right on cue, you've got hand-wringing and pearl-clutching in the Norman record. And they lay it on pretty thick. They desperately want to make the case that Harold deserved everything that was coming to him. That he was a nasty, brutish little man, and not even William's best efforts at peace were enough to hold back the war that Harold was so desperate for. And the Normans really run with this narrative. In fact, they go so far as to claim that Harold offered up his own sister for marriage to one of William's Norman companions, only to later call it off, saying that his sister was dead, and then asking if he should just send William and the fiancé his sister's corpse instead. So either Harold gets way creepier in the first weeks of 1066, or this is a clear propaganda campaign on behalf of the Normans. For historians examining these documents, it's clear that the Norman accusations of crassness and cruelty run counter to the way that Harold is spoken about in virtually every other account. And the idea that with the threat of war hanging in the air, he'd be all like, sure, let's turn my sister into the corpse bride. See if I care. Well, that doesn't really jive with the man who's being described in all the other sources. But the scribes writing these accounts weren't doing it for history. They had a very specific audience in mind. And their audience were the French barons and other assorted nobles and knights that William wanted to enlist in his war. Because he needed them. William was from a chivalric honor culture in which his position and even his life was threatened whenever he was perceived as weak. So he needed to be larger than life. And when William's demands and threats were casually rebuffed, he suddenly looked vulnerable. And in that circumstance, it wouldn't be long before other nobles would start thinking about taking his stuff and possibly his head in the process. Now, there are some historians who talk about William's anger in this moment. And I understand why. Some of the primary sources talk about his anger, after all. But I don't think anger is the right word for this. Anger is fleeting. You might be angry if someone refuses to let you merge on the highway. But it's unlikely that you'll still be angry later on that day. And William's fury doesn't stop. It grows. And given the cultural constraints of Normandy, I think what William was struggling with wasn't anger. It was pride. Specifically, wounded pride. And a fear that those around him might realize that he wasn't as powerful as he appeared. 
It was a fear that wasn't just of embarrassment. It was a fear that he could easily end up on the wrong end of a sword. And I think that's why William moved so quickly and why he worked so vigorously to portray himself as a man whose honor and whose family honor had been attacked by a villainous usurper. In the Norman version, William wasn't weak. He wasn't an arrogant guy whose over-the-top boast went embarrassingly tits up. He was a righteous man who had been wronged by a wicked creep, and he was now looking to settle that debt of honor. And so when Harold refused to carve up the kingdom and refused to have a spur-of-the-moment divorce, William immediately began meeting with his vassals, and he'd no doubt hoped that these stories of dishonor would help him make the case for their support. And truth be told, he needed as much help as he could get, because at the end of the day, what he was proposing was an equestrian naval invasion. (laughs) But speaking of bad ideas, in Flanders, King Harold's brother, Tostig, was still seething with rage and wounded pride. Those ungrateful savages of Northumbria had rebelled against him. And not only that, but his brother had failed to protect him. And as a result, he'd spent the last six months living in exile with his f***ing father-in-law. And now his brother was king. Yet apparently, while Harold could bring Tostig's exile to an end with a flick of his finger, he did nothing. And I wonder if that was the last bit of evidence that Tostig needed to convince him that Harold was the cause of all of his life's misfortunes. Not getting East Anglia when he wanted it? Harold. That feud with Morcar and Edwin? Harold. The rebellion? Harold. That time that someone stole his shiny red bike? Fucking Harold. And based on what happens next, I imagine the fact that Harold wouldn't end this exile was just one on a long list of grievances that Tostig was nurturing close to his heart. Now, you and I both know that Harold was between a rock and a hard place when it came to Tostig. The Ferd wouldn't muster to fight the Northumbrian rebels, not even when the king called them. And apparently none of the Witan was willing to put a stop to the order for exile. So it's not like Harold could have stopped it even if he wanted to. And after Harold became king, Northumbria was still on the fence, and they would almost certainly launch a civil war if Tostig was brought back. But Tostig either didn't know or didn't care about any of that. Complicating matters, it's also possible that Tostig might have been a little crazy by this point in his life. I mean, again, there were rumors of revenge cannibalism floating around this guy. But honestly, even setting that aside, if you look at his behavior with Northumbria and how he'd been marching around with a private army of a couple hundred Huskarls, and how he kept on getting into blood feuds, and how he had now become the very embodiment of familial resentment, we have to admit that something must have changed significantly with Tostig's mental health. I mean, this guy had previously been King Edward's hunting companion, and Queen Edith's favorite brother. But these days, I think even the most lenient HR department would insist that he get a counselor and get put on a performance improvement plan. Tostig seems to have been coming apart at the seams. And obviously, the 11th century was a bit short on therapists, so we can't pull his chart and find out exactly what was going on. But we didn't invent mental illness in the 21st century, 
even if we're coming close to perfecting it at this point. And Tostic's behavior becomes so extreme that you have to wonder if there is something more profound than pride that was driving it. Either way, though, let's take a moment to spare a thought for poor Count Baldwin of Flanders, who is now faced with the Christmas guest from hell. A son-in-law who wanted to drag all of Western Europe into war with England over a spat with his own brother. A son-in-law that Baldwin was probably more than a little concerned about, considering that the guy was linked to multiple murders and maybe a little revenge cannibalism. The mood around the court of Flanders must have been getting tense. And after six months of this, I'm guessing that Baldwin had enough. If allowing Tostig to recruit some men and grab a few ships was what he needed to take his dour nonsense elsewhere, well, that was a price that Baldwin would happily pay. So Tostig was set loose in the harbors of Flanders. And pretty soon, he had a little fleet and set sail. And this is where things get weird, because we don't have a single record for Tostig's movements. Instead, we have a variety of records that indicate various places he's claimed to have gone. In trying to deal with this mess, some historians have ignored some of these records, based on the belief that Tostig simply couldn't have gone to all the places that are listed. However, given the speed of travel at the time, it's actually entirely possible that all the places that mention his presence were telling the truth. Now granted, actually going to all these places in 1066 was kind of a weird move. But on the other hand, like I said, Tostig was getting a little weird. So I'm going to take the sources at their word. And according to these sources, once Tostig was done recruiting mercenaries, you know, functionally pirates, he left Flanders, and we don't know precisely what his plan for this mercenary fleet was. And honestly, your mileage may vary, but my experience with spiteful people is that plans are usually a secondary concern anyway. But if he did have a plan, he was probably intending to repeat his family's strategy of forcing their way back into England at the point of a sword. Though, to be fair, it's just as possible that he largely just wanted to screw over his brother and ruin the first part of his reign, and he was happy to use whatever pressure points he could find. But whatever he had in mind, Tostig and his pirates headed for Normandy and to the court of Duke William. And it turned out that Duke William was having a hell of a time. Do you remember last episode how we talked about chivalric culture and how there were large numbers of militant, illiterate men who had no purpose in life other than to inflict violence upon others? Well, you'd think that Duke William's planned war with England would be exactly the sort of thing that these dudes would love. But actually, you'd be wrong. William's proposed invasion was running directly counter to one part of chivalric culture. Specifically, the chivalry part. These guys were knights. They fought on horses, which meant that they liked to fight folks that they could, you know, reach on horseback. And England was on an island. Do you know how many European chivalric armies had launched an invasion over the sea by this point? None. Now, sure, there had been naval invasions in the past, some of which have been relatively recent and extremely successful. 
the Scandinavian invasions of Britain immediately leap to mind. But Halfdan, Ivor, Canute, and all the others were leading infantry armies across the sea. Those longships were stuffed full of Vikinger warriors, not horses. And really let this idea sink in. We're talking about horses. Creatures that are so highly strung that they might trample you to death if they happen to see a bit of trash on the floor that they weren't expecting. Creatures that will actually regularly freak out when they're in their own barn. And creatures that are not known for having a natural affinity for maritime adventures. But William was proposing that they put these same creatures onto a ship. A ship that they would absolutely have to share with people. People who, if the horses panicked, would get to choose between getting trampled to death or ditching out of the boat and into the ocean. Crazy. I mean, maybe you could pull something like this off if you had bigger ships. The Byzantine Empire transported cavalry overseas for some of their wars, but they also had big-ass ships that were built for that. You need galleys for this kind of thing. Ships that are large enough to have multiple levels and were designed to keep those who were actually sailing or rowing the ship separate from, you know, Mr. Ed and his hooves of doom. But Normandy didn't have galleys in their fleet in 1066. Instead, reaching back to their Scandinavian roots, they mostly had ships that were very similar in design to Viking longboats. Even the transport ships they were using were more or less the same concept as the good old-fashioned Drakkar, just a little bit more rotund, like a chibi Drakkar. So the ships that William had on hand were designed to be occupied by supplies and people, not horses. More than that, he couldn't just put any people on these ships. If William wanted to do this right away, he would need rowers, preferably experienced rowers, considering that you'd be asking them to efficiently pull their oars while also avoiding the legs of the panicked horses that were no doubt going to be packed into the center of the ships. And considering how these ships were constructed, there wouldn't be much room for experienced sailors on board. No, these rowers would mostly need to be knights that were supposed to ride those horses, since real estate on the ships was limited, especially, you know, considering all the damn horses. Now, sailing rather than rowing could alleviate some of the problems inherent with this plan. I mean, you'd still have panicky horses on your boat, but at least they wouldn't spend the crossing getting whacked in the knees by Sir Stefan's oar. And by eliminating the space need for rowers, you'd be able to also pack in a few more horses. But sailing isn't easy or intuitive. And it certainly wasn't part of the curriculum for your average knight. Which meant that these ships would need to be staffed with experienced sailors who had the necessary skill to cross the channel while literally thousands of pounds of equine death shifted its weight nervously on board. Not only that, but sailing isn't something you could do at any time of the year. You need the wind to be going in the right direction. And in late winter to early spring... It wasn't. And even if the weather did turn out to be good on one particular day for this voyage, that wouldn't be enough. This wasn't like a simple crossing of the sort that individual merchants would regularly take. This was a complex, massive invasion. And that meant it would take time. 
In fact, simply getting the ships loaded would probably take about a day, assuming it all went well. And then it would take another day to get everyone out of harbor, down the river, and into the channel. Which meant that good weather today wasn't going to get the job done. They needed to know that the weather would be good in 48 hours. And that it would last for another day afterwards. Anything less would result in this fleet being blown all over creation. And even if they were lucky enough to get blown towards England, there'd be a good chance that they'd be scattered all across the coasts of Kent and East Anglia, where they could then get picked off by one of the local firds. So this army, sorry, this cavalry, needed to arrive all together at roughly the same spot at roughly the same time. Anything else was likely to result in devastation. So they had to have consistent winds. And if they were going to make that crossing, it meant they would have to wait until the winds shifted in late summer to autumn. So obviously, a surprise attack was right out the window. And honestly, given the correspondence that had been exchanged between Harold and William, that opportunity had been lost a long time earlier. So William met with his allies in about February. And among them were his half-brothers, Bishop Odo and Count Robert, as well as his seneschal, William Fitzosborne. And they were joined by Roger of Beaumont, Walter Gifford, Hugh of Montfort, Roger de Montgomery, and William of Warren. This assembled nobility represented many of the most influential chivalric powers in Normandy. And they were also nobles whose fates were inextricably tied to William's. So William was making his pitch to as friendly an audience as he could gather. And that was a good thing. Because this pitch basically broke down to, okay, hear me out. I'm going to get a lot of horses and I'm going to put those horses on boats and then I'm going to stuff those boats full of knights. And most of them, you know, don't know how to sail, but we're going to sail those boats across the channel and just hope that we don't have any bad weather for about a week. And once we land, we're going to fight an entire kingdom who are waiting for us because I already told Harold I want to kick his ass. Now who's with me? This was obviously a batshit idea. But William was an autocratic Norman duke. And as such, he was able to enrich or impoverish the assembled nobility with a wave of his hand. So it's not like they could just laugh it off. Instead, they told him that they would definitely take part in his plan. I mean, they loved him. And they wouldn't dream of refusing him any service whatsoever. But they couldn't speak for others. So before we start fitting the horses with life jackets, we should probably gather a larger council. One that includes the barons and other lesser nobles, since they would also be called upon to become the first Norman amphibious assault force. And I'm sure they'd like to hear about your amazing plan as well. The whole thing has the feel of, that's a great idea, Mr. President. And personally, I love it. But let's send it to the Senate and see what they have to say. So William called for an assembly at Liebung, and it was at around this point that Tostig strode into Duke William's court. And no joke, he attempted to shame him for allowing Harold to sit on the throne, claiming that Harold was a liar and William was just letting him get away with it. So what he really needed to do was invade England, show Harold what's what, and, you know, restore Tostig as the Earl of Northumbria. I 
cannot believe the balls on this guy. Honestly, the whole Godwinson family seems to have possessed a degree of confidence that I can't even imagine. If they had house words, they'd be something like, why the f*** would I look before I leap? But confidence isn't the same thing as persuasion. And Tostig's incredibly brave statement wasn't exactly persuasive. I mean, why on earth would William want to invade England to restore Tostig to his earldom? I mean, maybe he'd want to invade to become king, sure, but that wasn't going to be something he'd do on Tostig's timetable. And certainly not after Tostig basically called him a wuss in open court. I mean, this guy sure was talking tough for someone whose only real feudal connection to William was that his wife was William's wife's cousin. So William, unsurprisingly, refused. But he did allow Tostig to leave unmolested. And I suspect that's because while he wasn't willing to go to war on this nutbag's timetable, he still could serve a purpose. Letting Tostig go would mean that he'd no longer be William's problem. He'd be Harold's. And that would free William up to deal with the assembly that was gathering at Leobon. So Tostig and his little mercenary fleet set sail. And Duke William met with the great assembly at Leobon and attempted to sell them on his new venture, Project Seahorse. <laughs> and William did what any good confidence man does. He appealed to their emotions. And considering that his audience were knights, he specifically appealed to their incredibly inflated egos and their fragile sense of honor. First, he spoke of how wicked King Harold was. And to illustrate that point, he told them about how Alfred, the brother of King Edward of England, was his own kin and friend. And he lamented how he'd been murdered upon his return to England. Which does sound really terrible. But that murder also did take place about three decades ago. Furthermore, while Godwin was accused of being involved in that, it was never proven, and critically, no one had accused Harold, who would have been a child at the time. But you know, details, am I right? Next, William spoke of how Earl Godwin had driven large numbers of Normans out of England, including Archbishop Robert of Canterbury back in the 1050s. And so once again, William was bringing up old shit. But this time, at least it would be a good case for dishonor if it wasn't for the inconvenient fact that what Godwin had done was legal. And also, Godwin was the one who did it, not Harold. At this point, he probably started to feel like he was losing the room, so William moved on to his next accusation that Harold had made an oath to William that he would give England to him. And that oath was made in the presence of holy relics. Now, as we discussed earlier, it's debatable whether this actually happened. And even if it did, the crown wasn't something that's bartered over. Wills don't make someone a king of England. The Witan does. But William's position was that no, Actually, Wills did make someone a king, and specifically, this Will was going to, one way or another. And to be fair, the claim that there were holy relics in the room did lend a little extra cultural weight to William's accusation that Harold was a perjurer. Because for knights, lying was one thing, but lying in the presence of God was something else entirely. They didn't know much, 
but they knew that God was magic and that they should fear him. However, typically, an agreement of this magnitude would have been accompanied by some sort of written evidence. Even among the illiterate Norman nobility, it was standard practice to get a little nerd to come in and write down the important stuff. And that lack of written evidence probably wasn't sitting well with the assembled Norman aristocracy. But with a couple accusations against Harold's dad and a vague statement of, he promised me the crown, but you're just going to have to trust me on that. William rested his case. And incidentally, do you remember that little naked guy on the bio tapestry? Well, one interpretation of that little flourish of embroidery was that it was a record of the sexual immorality of Harold Godwinson, with some theorists going so far as to suggest that it indicates that Harold had a tryst with William's daughter. Well, this counsel is why I don't believe that particular interpretation of the tapestry, or that it had anything to do with the reason why William was so pissed. Because look at this weak-ass case that William was presenting. If Harold had done those things, don't you think he would have presented that as evidence to the barons? I mean, surely it's better than, I heard Harold's dad was mean to a bishop one time. And even if he didn't want to drag his daughter into this thing, he still could have argued that Harold was out there philandering and generally being dishonorable with women. And while the Norman nobility were well acquainted with that sort of lifestyle, that wouldn't have gotten in the way of them hypocritically condemning Harold for it. And yet... Nothing. And honestly, just looking at William's case for war here, I think it lends credence to the English sources that describe Harold as a pretty decent dude. You know, at least as far as the European nobility was concerned. I mean, sure, he tried to do a genocide in Wales, but apparently that was a bit like destroying entire villages with drone strikes. He wasn't considered a scandal. It was just part of the job. Because seriously, a few things about Harold's dead and an allegation of a secret promise was really the best that William had? Weak. But the weakness of the case might not have been that big of a problem for many of the barons assembled. Because they were chivalric knights. For many of the assembled nobility, the details for the cause of war weren't the important thing when it came to conquest. What mattered was the details of the conquest itself. And unfortunately for William, the details of this conquest were crazy. The accounts of this meeting appear in multiple documents, and historian Edward Freeman put together a captivating narrative based on the works of Huntington, Malmesbury, and others. And it's from his narrative that I'm drawing the next section. After hearing what the Duke had to say, the barons asked for time to consider their answer. And as this was rather customary in Normandy, the request was granted, and the nobles broke up into groups, discussing the many issues that had been brought up before them, including, I'm sure, the average buoyancy of war horses. And while some were absolutely ready to sign on to this plan, many others weren't convinced. There were concerns of logistics for such an ambitious plan. I mean, this was going to require a lot of sailors, and what was the plan for training this many knights to sail? There are also concerns about costs. Constructing the ships necessary for this crossing and assembling a supply train for invasion would be incredibly expensive, and many of the barons lacked the resources necessary for such a huge project. There were concerns of scale. England was 
big. He was also wealthy and was militarily successful. A conquest of this magnitude could very well end in ruin for all of them, even if they made it safely across the sea. And that was hardly guaranteed. And so the barons began to grumble. Their fealty had to have some limits to it. William might be their duke, and he might have the ability to call upon them in war. But did that extend to cross-channel amphibious invasions of lands that none of them had any interest in? Especially when it's based on spurious claims of wrongdoing that were either about someone else or were offered without any proof. All of which to invade a frigging kingdom that was much larger than Normandy and wasn't exactly a pushover. I don't know if ducal authority extended that far. And besides, you know what this plan called for? Ships. Lots of them. So where the hell were all these ships going to come from? Normandy wasn't exactly a heavily naval duchy. In fact, the assembled nobility largely feared the sea and believed that while they were bound to serve their duke on this side of the water, they weren't bound to serve beyond it. And Duke William must have known this because he wasn't a sailor either. In fact, the only indication that we have that William was ever even on a boat up to this point was a single record suggesting that he visited King Edward in the previous decade. That is the sum total of his known sailing experience. Being a passenger. Once. Which isn't difficult to believe. I mean, if he had spent any significant time at sea, he probably would have realized how insane this plan was. So despite his interest in leading Project Seahorse, it's not like William had any experience in regattas or anything. And I'm guessing that for many of those at the council, this whole thing began to take on the stink of a rich guy who was involved in a pride-fueled pissing match. And now that he was losing, he was trying to make it everyone else's problem. The council was turning against the duke fast. So William Fitzosborne, the Seneschal, sprung into action. He began talking with the aristocrats, listening to their complaints, validating their concerns, and presenting himself as their ally. When he presented opposition, he did so gently, appealing to their sense of honor and duty, while also reminding them that their duke had a lot of power over them, and also had a temper so did they really want to be the reason why this conquest failed? The threat was significant and credible. So, knowing that Fitzosborne was close to the Duke, and feeling confident that he knew and understood their concerns, the disgruntled nobility asked Fitzosborne to speak to William on their behalf. The Seneschal agreed, and he stood before the Duke. And there he proclaimed the undying loyalty and fealty held in the heart of every man in attendance. The Seneschal told William that there was no danger that these men would retreat from, no service that he could ask of them that was too great. And he told Duke William that he knew this because the barons had asked him to speak on their behalf, and that every man in attendance didn't just agree to join the Duke in this campaign— they also promised him that they would bring twice the number of fighting men that was required of them. He then quickly added that he was so overwhelmed by their sense of duty and loyalty that he himself would provide fully 60 ships, fully furnished with fighting men, to support this brave endeavor. The hall full of nobles exploded. They could hardly believe what they were hearing. 
Instead of voicing their concerns, suddenly, Fitzosborne was trying to lock them into providing double the required fighting force? Are you fucking kidding me? And these barons weren't fools. If the duke got away with this once, he would definitely try it again, and then suddenly, their duties would be permanently doubled. Furthermore, when they asked Fitzosborne to speak on their behalf, they expected him to, you know, speak on their behalf. What the hell was even going on? The room filled with shouts of anger and recrimination, and before long, no speaker could be heard over the clamor, and the assembly had to be disbanded without a clear assent to Duke William's plan. Fitzosborne's gambit, as bold as it was, had failed. Or had it? The assembly had been rapidly turning against William, but no vote or formal decision had been made. And when the Seneschal made his move, he ensured that one of two things would happen. Either the barons would silently go along with his version of the events, or the assembly would immediately devolve into chaos and thus prevent an organized block from clearly shooting down the Duke's plan. Now, obviously, this wasn't the way that Duke William would have wanted this to go. And I'm sure the degree of anger on display was a shock and likely made him a little nervous. But it still was better than a no. Because now, the barons and other nobles were returning home. And that meant they were no longer gathered as a single group. They're on their own now. It would be a lot easier to pressure. So William began to meet with the barons separately. And each promised to provide the duke with a certain number of knights. After which, the duke ordered a nearby nerd to record that oath in one of his stupid nerdy books. That list of promises, recorded at the Ducal Hall of Lillebon, became a doomsday book of the conquerors. A sort of grim companion to the later, more famous, Doomsday Book of the Conquered. And beyond the promises of fighting men, the nobles also promised to build William a fleet that would ferry those men and their horses across the sea. All in all, the barons and other assorted nobles promised to give the duke anything he wanted, and more. Now, we aren't sure precisely how William induced these promises, or the pressures that he applied to his barons. But given what we know about William, and given that this was done in private once they were isolated from their compatriots, we can guess. I'm the bad guy. And with that, the assembly at Lillebon approved the Duke's plan for invasion. And it does appear, actually, that the Duke did take one concern of his barons quite seriously. The issue of manpower. England really was a large, wealthy, and successful kingdom. And it seems that William understood that he wouldn't be able to take on the King of England alone. He needed more support. So the Duke reached out to his neighbors and his extended family and other powerful figures in Western Europe. And he urged them to join his expedition. And he also requested that they don't attack Normandy while he's away. Then he waited for their responses. And I'm sure that you can imagine the sort of responses that Normandy a chivalric culture, got from the largely chivalric recipients. The fact was that neighbors in chivalric cultures carry a very different context to what you're used to right now. William wasn't reaching out to a friendly face who could provide a stick of butter when you're in a pinch. These neighbors had long-standing grudges with Normandy, 
often for very good reasons, often for reasons that involved a few dead relatives and some stolen property. And even the neighbors who didn't have clear grudges still had little reason to want to see Normandy gain power. If he had the power of England behind him, wouldn't that just encourage William to conquer their lands at a later date? And beyond all that, there's also the fact that this plan was nuts, and everyone could see it. They did not want to do this. But on the other hand, nobody wanted to be the first to say no to this famously temperamental duke. So nearly everyone just let William's call for support go to voicemail. The one person did say yes. Just one. Count Eustace of Boulogne. And that sucked. Because Eustace answering the call was not an unambiguous offer of friendship and support. I mean, I'm sure that Count Eustace said he was coming because he supported William's claims and because he wanted to get a little payback against the people of Dover for rudely refusing to be slaughtered all those years ago. But I suspect that the real reason why Count Eustace answered the call was because he was married to the sister of the late King Edward of England. And if the argument here was that Harold was a usurper and that William was the rightful claimant, well... On the matter of the line of succession, Eustace was actually on it, and his spot was higher than William's. So yeah, not exactly a supportive move on the part of Eustace here. And William appears to have been so worried about Eustace that he insisted that if the Count joined the invasion, he would have to leave his son in Normandy as a hostage. Though, as shady as that response was, it was still way better than the response that William got from Duke Conan of Brittany. Dear Billy Bastard, Unfortunately, I won't be able to attend the invasion myself because while you're in England, I'll be liberating Normandy from your vile, murderous clutches. But I do hope your invasion goes well, you usurping dick. Hugs and kisses, Duke Conan of Brittany and future Duke of Normandy. Not a direct translation, obviously, but that's basically the gist of it. It was a bold move on the part of Conan, though not without cause. Conan had been fighting over land rights for years, and a lot of blood had been spilled in this feud between them. And that's all on top of the accusations that William had arranged for the poisoning of Conan's dad, Duke Allen. So I'm sure that Conan was aghast that William would dare to ask not only for a pause on the hostilities so he could go and usurp even more lands, but also ask for his f***ing help. And unfortunately for Conan, boldness and wisdom don't always go hand in hand. And he might have wanted to remember who he was talking to. And how whenever people get between William and power they tend to die untimely and often very suspicious deaths. And wouldn't you know it? It wasn't long before someone smeared some poison on Conan's riding gear and horn. And whoops, Conan died before he ever got the chance to make good on that threat against William. I'm sure that must have been a coincidence. I'm the bad guy. But even if Conan was poisoned by someone else for... I don't know, reasons? Reasons that had nothing to do with the threat he'd just made against William the Bastard? The fact was that William still did need some allies for this invasion, and to date, he only had one. Eustace. 
and that guy was shifty as hell. So if something didn't change, and fast, this invasion would be over before it began. And it was at about this point that Bishop Lanfranc reached out to the Duke. And he was likely the person who pointed out to the Duke that the main obstacle for this planned invasion was that even if he could establish that Harold had no claim to the throne, that didn't mean that William did have a proper claim. I mean, sure, William said that a promise had been made, but there were no witnesses and no written evidence of that promise. Meanwhile, Harold had plenty of witnesses that said that Edward had named him successor on his deathbed. So, if promises made kings, then Harold had the last and the best evidenced one. And the truth was, if William couldn't come up with a valid argument for why he should be king, then he probably wasn't going to find much support. And given Bishop Lanfranc's position and his prior history, he was probably the person that persuaded William to tackle this from a new angle. A spiritual angle. The real problem with England, it was decided, was that England had broken away from the church. You see, William wasn't launching a feudal conquest. This had nothing to do with honor or hurt feelings over broken betrothals and oaths. This was a war to reform England and bring it back within Christendom. William was basically going to launch a holy crusade. Though crusades are tricky things. You need church approval. But luckily, Lanfranc knew just the man to talk to. It was a guy that Lanfranc had known for years and was actually an old student of his. They went way back. You might have heard of him. The Pope. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on social media. Reddit is still delightful. You can go check that out. And you can find links to all the communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.